Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Exodus. We are in Exodus chapter 20. We'll read verses 1 through 21 uh, as we approach the law of God. The author of Hebrews does tell us that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces. Paul takes that imagery as well and says that the word of God is profitable for doctrine, for challenging our misconceptions, for correcting those areas where we are wrong, and for teaching us righteousness. And so we approach the Word of God knowing that it is real and knowing that it is life-changing. So hear the Word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it shines a light into our life to show us where our actions and desires are contrary to your law. Lord, convict us today, but also give us the peace of knowing that we are forgiven by the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for those who believe and repent. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the 10th commandment, and we will wrap up our series that we've been through over the last 10, 12 weeks or so on the what is the law and the introduction to the law, and then finally looking at the summary of the law as we find here in the 10 commandments. As we have looked at these, I hopefully I've been able to clearly show us how the law speaks to both our actions and to our hearts. And today we'll see, we'll look at the 10th commandment and see how it is the foundation of taking the law, the first nine commandments, 
and shining them into our hearts as well as into our action. In his book, Written in Stone, Philip Ryken talks about a commentator who wrestled with the appropriateness of the Tenth Commandment. This commentator looked at the first nine and says that they do speak to our actions. They speak to our worship. They speak to our words. They speak to how we interact as, as humans, how we interact as husband and wife, how we interact as parents and children. And this particular commentator looked at the Tenth Commandment and said it's out of place and may not belong there. And of course, Philip Ryken and, and myself as well uh, would disagree that it doesn't belong because it does shine into our hearts a light that reveals to us that all of those actions that are talked about in the first nine commandments are really have their root in the heart of man. And so today we're going to look at the, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. We're going to define what coveting is. Then we're going to look at what it is that we do covet. And then we'll look at the Israelites' reaction to the law. The first, we need to ask ourselves and answer the question, what is coveting? John Currid in his commentary said that coveting is, quote, an inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire for something. It's been summarized by another commentator by saying that to covet is to crave, to yearn for, to hanker after something that belongs to someone else. If we look at those two definitions, we can see two aspects to coveting. The first is desire. We want something. Now, not all desire is sinful. Not all desire is coveting. Um, here in about 25 minutes or so, some of you are going to get uncomfortable because your stomach's going to start making noises. You're hungry and you desire to fill that, hungry, that hunger with food. That's not a sinful desire. When we're single, sometimes we desire a spouse. Uh, the desiring of that uh, man or woman who, who is that necessary ally with us in our life is not a sinful desire. But desires can become sinful when we have the second aspect of coveting with it, uh, when we consider that, which is selfishness. We see things in other people's lives. We see cars or televisions or phones or, or their lives even. And we want what they have for our own fulfillment, for our own selfish reasons. Jealousy and envy are the root of coveting. Whenever we see something we desire, how do we describe that desire? Envy and jealousy and coveting are when we look at the possessions or life of another and say that we deserve it and they don't. In his book, uh, a small book about a big problem, which is a, a 50 day devotional on anger, Ed Welch talks about a friend of his that he met after about 10 years, they sat down and they had a meal. When Ed, the last time Ed had seen him, Ed says that you know, he was struggling with addiction and that, is, that struggle had gotten even worse over 10 years. And so as he talked to him, Ed found out that this struggle with addiction was fueled by his brother. Not Ed's brother, but this man's brother. See, this man, uh, his brother had gotten out of college, he had started a business, and he had become very successful and very wealthy in his business. And this man who struggled with addiction said, my brother doesn't deserve that. I do. That's coveting right there. It's when we see 
what somebody else has and we say they don't deserve it, I do. It's jealousy. It's envy. It's selfishness. It's these desires that become idolatrous. And desire leads us to sin. We saw in our New Testament reading today in James 1, specifically verses 14 and 15, that there's a process of desire leading us to sin. The first thing is we see something. Maybe we see a television that a friend of ours has. Maybe it's the big 65-inch curved 4K screen that's just got like the perfect picture that's even better than watching those football games or those baseball games in person. It's just glorious in his picture, we say. And we decide that we want it. And then we dwell on that desire. And we don't just want a TV like that. We want that particular TV. And so we mull on it. We dwell on it. And that desire entices us to action, James says. An action that goes out and takes from somebody else's what is what is theirs to make it our own. And then, of course, sin, uh, once we obtain through that desire what it is that we want, it does lead us to death. We see a picture of this in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 7, uh, verses 20 and 21. The Israelites have defeated Jericho. In the defeat of Jericho, God told Joshua that, that everything was to be either destroyed or dedicated to God. The gold and the silver was to be taken to the temple. The other possessions of the the people of Jericho were to be destroyed. And after the battle of Jericho, they went to attack a a far smaller city and they were defeated. And God says there is sin within, within the nation of Israel. And that's why you were defeated by this far smaller city. And Joshua lines everybody up. They separate them by tribes, they separate them by clans, and then finally they come down to Achan and to his family. And when Achan is confronted with his sin that he has taken some silver, some gold, and a fancy robe, he says this, Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Coveting is a jealous and envious desire to have something that belongs to someone else because they don't deserve it, and I do. It truly is a matter of the heart. It truly is a matter of our desires, our idolatrous desires that seek us to sin against others. But what does the catechism say is the opposite of of coveting? It says contentment. The Tenth Commandment requires us to be content, to be satisfied in what God has given us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10 say this. These are Paul's words to the Corinthians. To keep me from becoming conceited because of this surpassing great revelation, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul is saying here, even in the worst parts of my life, I am content in what God has given to me, for His grace is enough. We fight coveting with satisfaction in God. We fight coveting with contentment. So we know what coveting is. We know what the opposite of coveting is. What do we covet? Well, I've already touched on this, we, on some of this. Sometimes we covet things. Sometimes we see somebody's car and we want that car. Sometimes we see someone's television. We want that television. Sometimes we see somebody's gaming system. We want that gaming system. Whatever it is, the, whatever thing that somebody else has, we want it. Our culture is built on coveting, by the way. Our economy in America is built on coveting. It's built on developing inordinate desires within someone so that they will go out and do whatever possible to spend whatever money possible or take whatever action possible to have that next best thing. The only problem with our culture is every six months that next best thing becomes the last best thing and we have to get the next best thing again. Our culture is built on coveting things. We don't only covet things though, we covet people. We covet friends. Maybe somebody has a friend that you want as a friend and so we try to take that friend from them. Somebody, sometimes somebody has a spouse that you want as your spouse and so you go to seek and take that spouse from them. But we also covet situations. Don't we look at other people's life and say, you know what, all around their life is better than mine. They're happier. They don't struggle where I struggle. They've got money where I don't have money. Man, God has just placed them in a far better position than He's placed me. And we want their life. We covet their life. We try to take their situation in life because we see them having things so much better than we do. And coveting, whether it's things, whether it's people, whether it's situation, is looking at God and saying, I have a better idea of how to run my life than you do. And I'm going to go out and get it. I am not satisfied with where you have placed me in life and I'm going to go fix it on my own because you won't conform your will to mine. That's what coveting is. And so we steal. We commit adultery. We lie. We cheat. We disobey our parents and disrespect authority. We worship other gods because the one true God of the universe who has placed us exactly where we are, we think He's done a horrible job. And we can do far better. And that's why Riken and the other commentators that I looked at said, this is the foundation of the law. We want what other people have because we think we know better than God. And we break the other nine commandments, even to the point of breaking the first commandment where we place another God before God because that God knows better than the God who gave us the law. So what is Israel's reaction to the whole, the whole, the entire law of God? 
As we look at Exodus 19, the chapter bringing us into Exodus 20, and as we look at the last four verses of Ex- uh, that we've been reading over the last several months, we see a picture of God giving the law. In verses 16 through 25 of Exodus 19, there's this picture. It says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. And it goes on to describe how the Israelites reacted to God's glorious presence falling upon Mount Sinai. And then out of that glorious presence, which caused the people to tremble and to take a a number of steps back away from the mountain, the voice speaks and God spoke these words. We've read that every week for the last 10 weeks as we've considered the Ten Commandments. We talk about the tablets of stone that that Moses broke, but the first time the Israelites were exposed to the Ten Commandments, it was direct from the mouth of God. Out of the thunder, out of the lightning, out of the flames, out of the cloud, out of the glory of God, the law came. And that law pierced their hearts like a double-edged sword. And after the law was over, after God had proclaimed these Ten Commandments, the Israelites looked at Moses and said, hey, You intercede for us. We cannot stand in God's presence. We are an unholy people before a holy God. And even though these are ten summary statements of a law that will be expanded throughout Leviticus, throughout Numbers and Deuteronomy, we cannot be in God's presence. You go before God for us. They they realized a fundamental problem that that is explained further in Leviticus they realized that God was going to live, a holy God, a righteous God, a perfect God was going to live in the middle of an unholy, unrighteous, imperfect people. And that doesn't work. God's holiness demands holiness in His presence. How is God going to live in the presence of an unholy people? The book of Leviticus. We read through the book of Leviticus and we think, oh my goodness, he talks twice about every single sacrifice and he goes into this insane minutia of detail about how every sacrifice is supposed to be carried in in a certain way and and killed in a certain way and certain things are to be done with blood. It's almost looking it's almost like for me looking at an accountant's spreadsheet. Your eyes just cross with all the details. But the point of the details is there's a sacrificial system for sin to be paid for so that a holy God can live amongst an unholy people. But what was the problem with those sacrifices? They had to be done every year, every day. They didn't, the, the priest who mediated the sacrifice died and had to be replaced. That, that whole sacrificial system pointed to something more. And the author of the book of Hebrews tells us that that something more is Jesus and the cross. Jesus on the cross took sin upon himself. That was the purpose of the scapegoat for the day of atonement. The priest would come and he would lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess all the sins of the nation of Israel. And that goat would bear the sins out into the wilderness where it was killed. Probably just because of wild animals and things like that. But the sins were laid on that goat, the scapegoat. And and Paul in 2 Corinthians and the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was that scapegoat. 
for those who repent and believe, for those who turn away from their sins and turn toward God, their sins were laid upon Christ at the cross. That those cries that He gave, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, were given because our sins had been laid upon Him. Everywhere where we break the law, even as James says, in the teeniest, tiniest of ways, everywhere that we break the law was laid on Christ so that grace might pour out upon us and we might be declared righteous. And once and for all, the holy God, when, he, when Christ returns at the end of history, the holy God might live among a people who have been made holy by the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Israel understood on a fundamental level that we cannot exist in the presence of this God because of this law without help. And God provided that help for His people. So coveting is desiring something that somebody else has because we deserve it and they don't. We covet life situations. We covet, we covet things and we covet people. And the law should remind us that we live in the presence of a holy God. And we are in desperate need of a Savior that God has provided for us. How do we move forward in light of this? How do we take care of ourselves and our desires? We really have to ask ourselves, am I content in what God has given me? Am I content? Am I satisfied with God? As Paul was satisfied with the Gospel in 2 Corinthians 12, am I satisfied with God and where He has placed me? We really need to be honest with ourselves and ask if there are places where we say, God, I know better how my life should work out than you do, and, and I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Or do we say with Paul, your grace is sufficient for me. This is a painful process. This is a difficult process because there's, there's just so much within our heart that, that seeks out after things that belong to somebody else. Things that belong to God, like power. You know, I don't like to look at my life and see where it falls short of the glory of God. Sometimes I'm thick-headed and it's painful what God has to do to me to make me look in my heart and see where my desires are for His authority and for His design. But sometimes it's also painful because God has led us into the valley. Psalm 23 describes the shepherd walking alongside the sheep through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's painful because my life is painful and I want the happiness that other people see around me. Paul says in Philippians 4.13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Tim Tebow used to put in his eye black before a football game, Philippians 4.13 in his eye black because what that means is that God wants us to win football games, right? No, not at all. Paul's actually talking about in that period, in that time, he says, there's been times of plenty in my life there's been times when I've gone hungry. If we look at, at, at 2 Corinthians 12, you could add to that, there's been times when I've been insulted, when I've been persecuted, when I've been beaten for what I believe, when I have just been destroyed for preaching the Gospel. 
And Paul says, but in everything I am content. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The answer to our desires, the answer to our inability to be content is Jesus. Everything that we have is God's anyway. Everything that somebody else has belongs to God. The only thing we're responsible to for is our relationship to God. And Paul says, I can be content in Christ because he has fixed that. And as he says earlier in Philippians, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, whether I'm insulted, whether I'm depressed, whether I'm anxious, whether I'm happy and joyful and full in my belly, I am content before God because of Jesus. For those who love God and are called according to his purposes, it is the final realization of our salvation through glorification that brings ultimate contentment. We don't find contentment in things or situations and people. We find contentment in Jesus. Are you content with what God has given you? Let us pray. Our God and Father above, and it is painful to have the light of your word shown into our hearts. And yet it is glorious to know that we can be content in whatever situation we find ourselves in because your son has reconciled us to you. Help us to be satisfied with you. Help us to be satisfied with our salvation and help us to be satisfied with the future that we have. As we know, these things here will pass away. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.